0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to What Would the Smart Party Do? And I'm here, as usual. He's systematic. He's hydromatic. Why he can cast a six-level chain lightning? Here's Buzz Stevens. How you doing, Buzz.
1: How long did that one take you to think up? <laughs> that came from out of nowhere. Uh oh, dear, I'm, I'm grease lightning, mate.
0: I thought I thought about systems, and then that, for some reason, that song came unbidden into my head, and then I thought I got to segue into something to do with role playing.
1: I got to like, roll save versus grease. I didn't think that was going to happen tonight. That's some strange earworm. What are we going to talk about tonight? Should we talk about games? Let's do that. Have we got any special guests?
0: Well, apart from you and me, I think we're special. I think so. At least people tell me that.
1: Have we got any big Kickstarters to talk about?
0: There's quite a few I've started backing, but they're not like massive. Probably shouldn't go into them because that'll be another five minutes.
1: <laughs> so is it just you and me and a games topic? Is that, that's what yeah. I'm getting at. Let's do that. Why don't we do that? Yeah, that's old school it. Let's go back to like the, the single digits of the smart party. Solving all of uh, gaming's problems over the course of an hour with just two men with their opinions.
0: And a bottle of whiskey.
1: Well, yeah, not so much these days. Too much that last night. Which went some way to informing today's topic. There's a segue for you. So, uh, in a slightly whiskey-addled couple of hours, I was listening to a uh, an honourable rival podcast... Gaming and BS. Highly recommended when you're not listening to The Smart Party. And they've covered an awful lot of topics over their, over their years in the game. And I like listening to other people's conversations about, about role-playing games in general. And there's always some good stuff to be had from them. And anyway, one of the topics that they were covering, I thought, oh, I, I want to write a comment. I want to write into the lads. But actually, what I really wanted to do was talk to you about it for an hour. So that's, that's what we're going to do. And mm. the topic that was covered was Game Changers. So the topic for discussion tonight is those games that when you encountered them they influenced the way that you play any of your other games Hmm. so they're not saying that they're they're better games or anything else like that but we've all been on a bit of a journey as we started off in the hobby whenever that was and we're in a different place probably now uh, and without wanting to be pejorative about it I think probably everybody matures over time with their gaming selections but there were some systems that dropped into your life at some point in your gaming uh gaming journey that have really steered you in a new direction and there's you know there's no way back now now that you've seen that that's the kind of thing that you apply to your style whether as a player or as a gm so i thought i thought that was a worthwhile topic and it immediately made me think of probably half a dozen systems where i could say that, that was true
0: are we, are we starting with earth i probably might as well just ask that question uh, straight
1: up well there you go that's that bingo Bingo! <laughs> <laughs> you can see on the camera I'm I'm crossing out the first thing on my list. <laughs> yes, Earththorn. Well, take it away, guys, mate. Tell us what Earththorn did to you as a gamer.
0: It was, as we discussed previously, I think, it's D&D done right. I think for me, there were lots of elements within it that just made a lot more sense all of a sudden. So it's still a game, it's still set in some crazy fantasy world. It's still got a crunchy system. It's in many ways like D&D. You could draw lots of parallels. But it tried to make sense of some of the stuff that's a bit shonky, I guess. So there's there's reasons for dungeons. They have these abandoned underground chaos stuff with monsters, but there's a reason they're there. And that kind of thing. The world's been rearranged while people have been stuck underground in these chaos, so now the maps are all a bit vague. So there's a reason to go exploring the world and nobody can tell you what's exactly where and you know all that stuff suddenly becomes there's an in-game reason for doing the stuff you were doing D&D or whatever. Uh, it has things like uh, the magic system means you can cast as many spells as you want compared to the somewhat distasteful view of being a first-level wizard who can cast one sleep spell and that's them done for the rest of the adventure. Um, it was it just made a lot more sense that wizards should be able to cast lots of spells like fighters can hit people with swords lots of times. Uh, things like getting strain for using special abilities, you can take a bit of damage to really exert yourself and do stuff it's like, well, why can't you push yourself and, and have put that a bit of your lifeblood into it to really make something happen. Uh, your name means something, legend points or experience points, but you get experience and that makes you better by talking about it and every knowing who you are and the fact that you are named with a capital N hero uh, then increases your abilities and your prowess throughout the world, it all feeds back into each other. And then things like magic items, which you can't just pick up and use to their full extent. You have to find out their history and who used them and what deeds they performed, formed and things like that. Which make magic items suddenly like this cool and powerful thing that you've got to get invested in. And you've got your sword that becomes better and better and is your magic sword by the end of it. Rather than maybe in a D&D game you trade in your plus one sword for a plus two sword and then a plus three sword and keep levelling them up like that way, and throwing all the magic swords in the bin now because you don't need them anymore, or going to a shop to cash them in, which always seemed a bit weird. So that's that's my initial rush and gush of information and excitable stuff about that. What's,
1: what did you think about <laughs> Earthdom? What have you got? <laughs> that was brilliant, mate. <laughs> and it wasn't even read off the back of the book. Um, yeah, Earthdom was really influential uh, for me and for you for lots of different reasons. Um, and i and i think this is going to be a bit of a common topic so our listeners back at home will no doubt be thinking themselves like you know what were the big influences on my gaming and i think for very many of us it's like what was the game that showed you that D wasn't the only way of playing a fantasy game because i think the vast majority of people would have got started with that and if they weren't started with it it would have been like a common parlance wouldn't it now, Earththorn certainly wasn't the first to do that. I mean, You could say that RuneQuest was another take on D&D. You could certainly say that Tunnels and Trolls was another take on D&D. But I think for me, mate, same as you, Earththorn was the one where they really thought about it. And they thought about every aspect of it as well. It's, it's not just a D&D variant, it's a reimagining. Taking the same tropes and trying to apply a little bit of, uh, a bit of thought and a bit of verisimilitude and some consequences and just running forward with those ideas and saying... What kind of game world would exist if these tropes are all going to be present and I thought that was really good um, it massively influenced a lot of games actually because D&D doesn't really have a setting um, lots of games do now but that, was, that wasn't that was always the case Traveller never really had a setting yeah yeah official Traveller universe but it's not there in the little black books it's implied at best right. d and the same you know it's implied um and that was true of a lot of games, but but Earth is bar save and mm-hmm. to have that threaded all the way through it as well, although, you know, not massively an innovation necessarily, but definitely to see that a big, chunky, hardback fantasy role playing system could have all of that. It's kind of there with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay for a similar kind of reason and a similar kind of vintage actually for really tying the world into the game that you play. And that that's why it was kind of an innovation. For me and a big influencer is that ever since then and it is now a long time ago I'd find it quite difficult to pick up say Gerps and, and occasionally stuff like Savage Worlds if it's just a toolkit system and it doesn't have a world to rub up against. Right. So it's, my memory is probably a little bit shonky but I certainly remember that Earththorn was an eye-opener for that one and made me look at those kind of generic games in a different light ever since.
0: Hmm. And it did. Um, it did a cool thing with like Serpent River, which takes you on like a, a magical mystery tour in a big sea around the the map of Barsev as well. it's because there's lots of little bits to it, and every paragraph had some cool thing that was there. That was just dropped in, but seemed to fit like upside down waterfalls or you know just weird things. But every paragraph had a little nugget that made it interesting. And then once you would got through the series of splat books and stuff to give you an overview of kind of like the known stuff in the world, it then started a ticking clock, and the game world started moving on. And the King changed, and things like that, and stuff happened. there was an invasion and you know like so not only did it have um, its own world, but then it, it set the world in motion and yes. put the players in the middle of it to sort of say these things are happening and what which what role do you play and how do you get involved uh, and that that was again putting characters within the world that they created, not just having the world, and then the characters may or may not interact with it
1: yeah uh, Metaplot seems to get a bad rap sometimes i 've always quite liked the idea of Metaplot that idea mm. that um, that there's a big story that can be in the background or it can be in the foreground at your own table obviously but there's something happening that the button has been pressed and it's moving forward my well, fantasy role play didn't ever have that that was static for decades nothing mm. ever happened it's lurched forward a lot since then when they hit the go button but things like earth dawn and all of the white wolf games that were knocking around at the same sort of time you had to jump on. It was like jumping onto a comic book series. You know. If you wanted to get into the Fantastic Four, you had to wait for those little moments every now and again where they would do not quite a reboot, but it would be a good jumping-on point because otherwise you would just get swept along in the meta metaplot. Mm. Um, I'm thinking of games like Deadlands, for example, or Brave New World, I think, was the poster child for the big metaplot game. Mm. I quite like that. I quite like that, um, that Shadowrun had some stuff happening that there was a different president and that the timeline was moving forward because that certainly wasn't the case in like the original D books and the games that i was playing in the 80s they were just they were like you know flies in amber. they were just kind right. of stuck and they were great fun uh, but i didn't really ever get a sense of forward motion
0: no and i think that's like i said it's a double-edged sword because it can be intimidating to get into sometimes mm. but you can you can actually get into it. You can just buy the books in the right order. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can. can follow yes. I mean, as opposed to something like uh, Glorantha, for example, which is the like I'm glad to see that the the Chaosium boys are going to do a starter set for that. Yeah. To get, to, to get people to ringquest and stuff. Now that's been three or four decades in the making. But that, Glorantha they keep adding more to. But it doesn't make it any easier to get in, and it doesn't matter what point you join, there's still more to find out. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh the the meta plot thing at least does give you some kind of framework to follow. And I think the Earth Dome One in particular, the I think was the Prelude to War, it was a framework book. It wasn't a set of hard adventures saying this is exactly the dungeon you're gonna go in and these are what your characters doing. It's like these events are happening, this is how your characters might be evolved, this is how it affects the world. And then it was up to the GM to kinda of like pad it in because by that point, presumably you've got some experienced characters who'd been on their own adventures and created their own friends and enemies and all the rest of it so it was again a nice way of doing it as well rather than just being a straight up adventure it's just like here's the framework to what's going to happen and you build that into whatever ongoing campaign you've got going on
1: yeah it's a a, it's valuable insight as well mate is that again I don't think Earththorn was the first to come up with any of these things because we're not talking about games that have influenced the hobby or even the industry but just games that have influenced us and, Mm. and for me there was two things I took from Earththorn was that a nice big exciting backdrop is a cool thing to have in any game that you're playing and make it about the characters, Earththorn did that systematically with legend points and and thread weapons and that kind of stuff, but also did it in as you say, the way that they presented what would have previously been a module was actually campaign frames, and that really did influence a lot of the games that I bought and played in the years since um and it still does it still does I still think those are two two touchstones that I would want from my gaming being being a fan of the players, putting their characters at the heart of the story but having something rolling along behind them that they can fade in or out of at will um, that, that matters you know. the world is continuing despite what you're doing down that grubby hole yes
0: yeah all good Cool. Anyway.
1: so we both have the same one which is it's going to make this either a very short poll <laughs> I can't imagine we've got the same ones in the rest of the list <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine we have can I pick on um, can I just pick at that thread a little bit more and leap way forward in time uh, because I just wanted to mention that I've got a couple of games that are kind of my go-tos for when I want to get a and d style game going on, but I don't want to play D&D. So D&D's probably had more iterations than any other game in the world, and almost every table has got its own iteration of D&D. And when you start counting retro clones, this, that, and everything else, if you do want to play Dungeons & Dragons, you don't have to play Dungeons and & Dragons. And the games that I've found the most influential for me personally... Um, enough to cause me to end up writing my own version uh, would be at both ends of the kind of the OSR spectrum. So, Dungeon Crawl Classics is hugely influential on me uh, because it, it took D&D right back to its, its foundational literary beginnings to look at the books that spawned the games of the 70s. And these would be books of the previous part of the 20th century stuff mm. like Fafford and the Grey Mouser, stuff like Michael Moorcock. Some pulp stuff, some Howard stuff some some just weird fiction and see what the game would look like from that perspective blended with basic D&D so old school in a certain sense lots of people don't think it's OSR and that almost doesn't really matter but the idea of a book that was D&D with one particular vision that was pretty influential on me and then at the other end of it at a much more narrative version of D&D would be 13th Age Bingo! <laughs> yeah, there we go. So that's the one that that takes the the slick mechanics from third and fourth edition and bolts them onto some quite indie story game type techniques that make the campaign organic and all about following the improvisation around the table, and yet having big ass crunchy battle scenes, just like you were, you had when you were fighting goblins in a cave in 1981 but with modern gaming technology around it so two different very different perspectives on Dungeons and Dragons very different perspectives but both of those have been a massive influence on the style of game that I want and I suppose the big influence has been is there's a game for every style go and get that rather than taking someone else's game and trying to hammer it into shape then it yeah. doesn't quite fit there's a D&D for everyone People people say they don't like D and D, probably haven't looked hard enough because there are thousands of them, and there will be one at least that you can find. So, you know that that was an influence. What about yourself, mate?
0: Yeah, I did have Thirteenth thirds written down. It's it's probably my favourite D and D. If if like I'm not a massive D and D nerd, as listeners will probably know, but if I'm going to play a D and D style game, Thirteenth thirds is probably it for me. Um, part of that is. um it's the escalation of stuff, if I can coin that phrase. Mm-hmm. So there's the escalation die, which goes up every round and makes it increasingly likely that the, the players will hit and therefore defeat their foes so the comebacks don't go on too long. Uh, but it works for levels as well. So like, I, I just remember D&D games of old where like, I'd have whatever, a longsword that does a D8, say, and then I'd finally get my plus one longsword. So I'd do a D8, plus one. On and it's sort of like incrementally go like that. Whereas in. Thirteenth stage, it's like I will do a d8, and then I'm second level, so I will do two d8. Now I'm third level, so I do three d8. So there's like a really sort of like uh, steep ramp in the, how many dice you get to roll and how powerful you feel. So you can see like real progression quite quickly. It probably comes down to again that thing of not wanting to be a wizard that casts one spell and then can't do anything. Hmm. I like the quick move into you can do lots of things, and then you've got lots of little abilities that kick off stuff. So in a regular d&D game. Um, well, certainly the old school, the uh, fighter was pretty much limited to what they could do, and there weren't many options. I know that's changed now uh, with the latest iteration and so forth, uh, but you know, 13th age gives you lots of things to key off every dice roll you roll. So if you've got rolling even or you roll a 16 plus or whatever it is, there's quite a lot of little bits and pieces everyone's got to their dice roll, which then mean they might go to do an extra thing, or have a special ability happen, uh, and it's that kind of like extra cherries or... It's like a lot of extra criticals, like everybody loves it when they roll a critical, but if you've got a bunch of other stuff that can happen when you roll, your die every round, and it can be every round, then that makes it more exciting to to play the game. And then like I say as well, you've you've added in the indie elements that you've alluded to, so things like having one unique thing that can be unique to you in the entire world, and that can shape how the world looks and things like that, and your icons and all these other elements that they've woven in as well so yeah i, I really dug 30th edge uh, i wouldn't necessarily run 20 level long campaign but you know I, I certainly don't shy away from playing it i do enjoy a good game so mm. uh, even though i'm not necessarily D D adjacent a lot of the time uh, that is where i can step into that world and uh, enjoy it
1: yeah all of those reasons and more mate it's the other thing that I took from that is I was in quite early with Thirteenth Age, early enough to see the playtest documents. I think you were too, actually. You were yeah, yeah. pointed me in the right direction at the time, and it was just so refreshing to read a book that was pitched at people who play role playing games. Hmm. Because um, again, it won't be the first, but it was a big influence on the way that I wrote King of Dungeons. Was let's not pretend this is your first role playing game. And if 13th Age is your first role-playing game, you're probably a little bit baffled. I mean, you didn't necessarily need to have the player's handbook to play it. It's not that sort of game. It is a complete game. But woe betide you if you'd never played a fantasy role-playing game before, because it just just assumed you knew what what these things were. Does it actually say no? I don't know if it does. Does it say what an NPC is? It probably doesn't, because it's become common parlance by now. And that was nice. It was comfortable. It was like having Jonathan Tweet and Rob Hinesu just having a chat with you. About their cool variant of Dungeons and Dragons, and would you like to have a go? And these are the bits we've added, and these are the bits we've taken away. And the whole thing is—it was described as a love letter to D and D, but I think it was a love letter to D and D fans as well. Yeah, it's here's a way of relaxing about the whole blooming thing. 'Cause don't forget this came out after the Grand Edition Wars of Fourth Edition as well and, <laughs> and and the edition wars were still lingering from third edition and and all of the other editions, but this was just two guys who thought, Do you know what? This let's prove for a start that we can mangle two editions uh, together and make a completely new thing out of it. And also just be relaxed about it. It's got a sense mm. of humour in the game. Yeah. It really does, and and I think a lot of role playing products have had a bit of humour in them in the past, sometimes overt, sometimes less so but this one was just written conversationally and that was super refreshing and I still love books that have that tone going through them and some of the other games I'll mention today will have a lot of that in there too so it's a big influence on the way I write and the way that I like to consume my books
0: yeah um and it took a relaxed approach to solving some problems as well like the montage thing which yes uh, a lot of us use now, we you basically just you describe a problem, the next person describes how it's solved, and it goes around a circle like that till everybody's described the problem and now it's solved. And that for like going on long journeys, which for many years in DDD could have been like roll for wandering monsters, set watches, try and describe the countryside so it sounds interesting. And it always seemed to be a bit of a sticky point, people couldn't like just smash cut till you're at the dungeon door now, you had to feel like you were traveling somewhere, and then there wasn't really is the support there for it, does it feel like part of the game? So just kind of like uh, with a, the authorial stroke of a pen, just going, do you know what, you're going to make it all up and you're going to do cool things when you did it and you'll start the a story at the end of what the cool journey was, but it's only going to take five minutes and we're not going to bother rolling any dice. Mm. I think that sort of thing just it, it recognized that there was a, a, a chunk of most D&D games there that happened that people weren't necessarily satisfied with. So what's a way of making it cool, but also quick? And then we get to the action, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Was just a, a pragmatic approach to problems and making them uh, real, rather, uh, real kill cool, rather, you know. So,
1: yeah, I think it, I think what it does, those that's a perfect example of some stuff that ends up in the book. um Although some people are probably gnashing their teeth now, going, "That's not in the thirteenth page core book." <laughs> <It's> well <not. laughs> But you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's kind of them now, but it's a. It was definitely a reaction to what happens at real gaming tables. So 13th Age is clearly not a book that is written in an ivory tower or Mm. purely from theory or anything else like that at all. It is legitimately off of real gaming experiences and and gaming experiences that aren't idealised. In any way at all, you know. Sometimes you, I know, that it drives you nuts, guys. When you read those gaming examples where people are cradling cool ivories in their hands and grinning at their players, <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. But this is much more where people are like burping and farting and going. Oh, I don't know. I, can we just get over the river? Yeah, you probably can. Let's roll to see how much of an ass of yourself you make stumbling across the river. You know, just real experiences, and and I I really appreciated that. So it's a. Uh, it's a really slick game uh, and it took some work to get it to that but I loved how how genuine it felt and and how relevant it felt to games that I'd played around my table as opposed to I'm going to try and get this game out to my guys I'm going to have to give them a bit of a briefing on what's expected the 13th age I kind of didn't need to do that Mm. because it just fitted so naturally with how people actually play Dungeons and Dragons in the 21st century
0: yeah very true Fitting. Yeah. So let me take um a bit of a left turn then and go somewhere else. Go on then See as we've talked about, uh, dawn and d so far, effectively. Uh, Lady Blackbird. I'm going to bring up,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which is free, if you go to 17 Design John harbour site. You can still pick it up now, and that probably more than anything is the single, if we call it a scenario, it's the single most played scenario that I know of literally every convention I've been to for decades there's always been multiple tables being run of Lady Blackbird and people carrying the bag as the thing to run but it's more than just a scenario it's a game in itself there's a set of mechanics there's lots of implicit world building in there mostly written on the character sheets there's a little map a little spaceship type thing not even a spaceship it's like a submarine but it flies through the sky and there's big space squid whale things and there's there's just lots of cool stuff all in a really small package and it's quite intimidating, really, in a way, because if you look at it, it's only a few pages, really. And it is sort of a complete game. Some people might not say that if you want you know, pages and pages of fluff or extensive rules on all kinds of things. But it is a complete game. But it's a complete go to convention and run this for three hours sort of thing. And you've got the setting rules, the characters, how they'll interact, what they're doing, starts in immediate media res situation. Uh, and if people can produce those, that kind of thing, uh, I think that the world would be in a great place, but probably because due to its size, it belies how complex and how much thought and how clever it is. And there's tons of extra bits in it that aren't in bigger games necessarily. So there's some there's some sort of safety rule stuff in there, and it's that explained in kind of what you might have on a tape set. So you, you can have got like a rewind button if you decide you didn't like something, so you can just rewind it back and do it again. And uh, there's a fast forward button if you decide you don't like the current scene, which might be for um you know x reasons or it could just be that everybody's bored to so say can we cast force forward and move to the next scene and just tells you very directly to do stuff that can make your game better rather than trying to go around the false sort of contracts that you might have in many games and kind of feeling like you have to sit through scenes that you don't want to or things like that so that's all cool the characters are all really engaging it starts in media res there's a clear goal uh, it's just a really really good product and you know again for those at the back it's free you can just go on his website and take it and it's uh, just a brilliant piece of work which I say is like part convention game part scenario part actual game part treatise on how to run a game just generally and for the the amount of words there are there there's actually a lot of stuff packed into it and it's really good product
1: so this is one of those ones that is personally influential because I agree with you mate I've never played it uh, but I've studied it studied it hard to take some design lessons from it um but it's definitely been influential in the wider industry as well uh i don't it's the last time we'll talk about john harper today either but Ah. my question for you is why hasn't that format been picked up by other people other publishers and really punched through into kind of like a mainstream way of 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 consuming the role-playing games because it looks like it does everything right it does do everything right it's a complete package. It's ready to go. It taps into so many things you think would be ideal for publishers, that kind of almost like a how to host a murder mystery. You've got everything ready to go. You could play it with complete noobs. I'm convinced you could play it with complete noobs. I hear People that he's played with complete yeah, noobs yeah. a lot. Yet, if you're a veteran gamer, you can squeeze even more out of it. You can read it in one sitting. It's free. I don't know if you mentioned that. <laughs> <So> <laughs> there's absolutely no downside to this at all. But I know that there'll be people on this podcast who have never heard of it before. Lady Blackbird by 1-7 Designs, go and get it. And why is that? Why has it not been picked up and run with?
0: I suspect it's harder than it looks. Mm. If you know what I mean. So there's um, there's a few artists and stuff I follow on Twitter, and some do like quite sketchy, like broad brush type things. And it's like, oh, he's my sketch of the day. You think, oh, that looks cool. And it looks like it's done quite quickly, in that in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And the other day, one of the artists put like, oh, yeah, this only took me two hours. You yeah. go, oh, right. Wow. Something I t- think takes five minutes, took two hours. So, you know, my, my shattered my illusions of great artists, like obviously, art's oh, it's a lot of work. I'm not putting anyone down. It's just that what something looks like and how much work goes into it can often be different. Yeah. So I imagine Lady Blackbird actually took a lot of hard work because it looks so, because it's elegant, because it looks so simple and these are so effective. It feels like other people should be able to pick it up and write lots of them. Mm. But I don't think it's as easy as that, and that's probably why they've not come out. I don't know. I wonder whether, because it doesn't cost anything, I don't know how you price it necessarily. Sure. You know, how would you put a price tag on that? And then how does that then retrofit to say how much time do you have to put into it to make it? And is it actually worth the commercials to put all mm. that effort in and for the money you might get from it? And because it's a one-shot, how many might you sell? I don't know. I know John's done a couple more of them, in a similar vein, yeah. and he's moved on to other projects, uh, which have all been very successful. And then there's the simpler ones, like Lasers and Feelings, which is just like one side of A4, mm. which again is very popular as a pick-up-and-play game. I'd like to see more of them. I mean, people clamor for stuff in the Lady Blackbird world and say, like, can I have a background book and stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So part of it might be that thing that Dennis Datwell and others talk about, that people want big honking books. I don't know. I'd, I'd like to see more, but I don't know. I suspect it might just be uh, an effort to output ratio.
1: Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's anything simple about Lady Blackbird's um, invention at all. It looks like an incredibly sophisticated piece of work where I'm sure a lot of time went into what words to not use mm. and, and then cutting it back to making it as, you know, as lean as it can be. I think the thing that probably puts off maybe not the right word but let's go with it. Maybe the thing that puts people off is that it is a one-use scenario, Um, which I'm absolutely fine with, personally, because it's a one-use scenario you could play 30 times. (laughs) And I've got books that could offer you, like, you know, 20 years of potential play that I've never played once. So I know where my value is going, that kind of thing. But you have to sort of mentally adjust your thinking on that one a little bit, don't you? You... And then maybe that's it. Maybe it's not seen as... Because it came out, what... Good twenty twenty five years into the gaming hobby's existence, and by that time, role playing game has taken on a certain meaning. And I remember when it did come out; probably people thought this isn't a role playing game. You still get that kind of you know, crappy insult thrown about about a few things, don't you? Regrettably, yeah. and in indie gaming and story gaming and and games of that kind of vintage, it was not alone at, at the time in, in trying something new about the way that role playing games were played around a table, if they were played around a table at all. So, perhaps it was ahead of its time?
0: Yeah, maybe. From John Harper, we said we'd mention his games as well, so let's bring up gun, which I played a lot mm-hmm. of last year, and played a bit of this year as well, to be fair. That's probably the evolution of where he went. He's probably a bigger Lady Blackbird, if you mm. know what I mean, Yeah. in terms yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. it's got a nice tight system, It's still having one scenario, there's a dozen in it, and things like that, so it's just been slightly expanded and packed and does more. Uh, but you know, that game's still got a limited amount of life, it has so many islands, you can make your own, but then it puts clocks in there for when the game should end, and then you have your discussions at the end, so it's not an unlimited campaign. Uh, it's very good at getting players to roughly describe what they're doing, and then everybody rolls dice and then you describe it in detail afterwards once you know what the result is, which is something that maybe you could do in d and a bit more and all the rest of it, you know, it's something you could transfer to other games. But the other good thing that Agon does while I'm talking about it and why, why I was excited about it is I've always wanted to do something that was like Greek mythology or that pseudo Greek mythology. And it does that very well and does things like getting Divine Favour and building that hard into the system so that Divine Favour is really important. And you know once you've filled the constellations of the sky for certain gods that's when the game ends. So it's it's another good game of John's where he's really got hold of the theme and, and bedded it into the game and made the game about the theme and vice versa. Mm. So that's again it's another game that I think is not like GURPS or Savage Worlds or others that you've mentioned. And probably in some ways is a bit more like Earth Dawn in that it's a very specific game to be played in this kind of environment. Mm. Although, having said that, is um as the Paragon system I want to say, I think it's called. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah it's done the bare bones of it, which there's now we've played a bit of chamber and there's uh, like a Norse variant someone's doing, and there's a bunch of others that are done, but it's doing a very clever thing there in terms of running a good system that works at a certain style of game and a really strong setting, but then made it available to put other settings on top if you want to play in a similar manner. And i will be interesting to see how they develop. But that again, again, you know, it's a good, solid product as is and does its intent. And then it's got the expandability and more stuff will come out, which perhaps didn't happen with Lady Blackbird. So maybe that's the this is the new evolution evolution even of that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a good insight actually. Man, I hadn't really considered it like that. But you're right, it's not a one shot, is it? It's like a twelve shot. Yeah, but it's <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a beautiful piece of work. And, and if I can continue the John Harper fan club podcast for a minute, well, or why two, not? Why not? <laughs> and refer our honourable listeners back to the previous episode in which you know we had a great interview with John Harper, didn't we, Indeed. Uh, about his methodologies and it's well worth going back through the archives to find that one. I remember one of the things that he, that he came out with, which kind of surprised me at the time and still does, is how he designs his game with the character sheet first mm-hmm. and then designs a game around it. So graphic design sits right at the heart of a lot of his decisions. Uh, and the visual aspect of his games is something that will never come across well in a podcast but is is it has to be seen um, one of the games that I've got on my list which is hugely influential on me and it's very recent is Blades in the Dark so Blades in the Dark is through Evil Hat now It's uh, they, they're the ones who distribute that and that's another game by John Harper and Blades in the Dark is the game of heists in a kind of slightly industrial, smoky Edwardian fantasy world. So if you're thinking of touchstones it would be things like apparently the dishonored video game.
0: Very much so, yeah.
1: And in books that would be Lies of Locke Lamora, things like that. So it's you play criminals, you're a bunch of scoundrels, you run around in tricorned hats with little flintlock pistols uh, in a grimy city that's full of ghosts. And it is I think it's a masterpiece. Blades in the dark is just it, it blows my mind on repeated rereads what it achieves sometimes in not very many words at all and i think it's a hard game to run and i think it's a hard game to play but it is incredibly rewarding what it does with so few moving pieces but it's kind of like a swiss watch i suppose every little piece is connected to another one and it's you know (laughs) everything moves together at the same time Uh, and it somehow remains hackable as well and has now given birth to an awful lot of games called Forged in the Dark Games as a kind of a stable, stable label and well what has it done for me I mean the innovations in that game that I now want to see in all games are things like and again it wouldn't be the first one to have done it but the idea of a crew sheet the idea of your party or your group being a character as well as the individuals within it so it's like a central shared resource could be smugglers or they could be hawkers or they could be some weird cult but that will actually have mechanical heft in the game it will matter what sort of party you have decided to play that party will have abilities it will have resources it will have stats you can roll dice off of them and again not the first to do it but if I don't see something like that in in a game now I wonder why on earth it isn't there Hmm. because it seems so natural Warhammer fantasy roleplay did it with third edition other games have done it since. Uh, it's it's just a lovely thing. But it's one of about 20 things in Blades in the Dark, which I, I just want to see in all other games from now on. Yeah. Talking about factions, talking about clocks, the way that the, the background um, comes in and out of focus depending on what happens at your table and no one else's. There's absolutely no sense of metaplot whatsoever in this at all. But you know, every game will be different. The idea of a finite ending point on it, where you can retire characters—you know—it doesn't go on forever. But you're better off having a second season, maybe like The Wire, where you look at everything from a different viewpoint in the same place. Yeah, it's as clever as anything, bloody clever game that.
0: Yeah, brilliant, another elegant game, uh, and it's got stuff like the stress mechanic, so you can take stress to have flashbacks and yeah. things, so you don't spend all your time working out how you geared up and what the plan was in the first place. Just get on with your plan. If in five minutes you haven't made an engagement roll and got to the, the heist, I don't know what you're doing with Blades in the Dark, stop playing Shadowrun in the 80s where you spent three hours planning it and then half an hour actually getting it wrong and kicking doors in. Yeah. Uh, and things like if you're the group lead on a stealth roll, and fails just gives you stress because you're getting wound up without them trying to keep quiet every time someone stands on the branch you have a heart <laughs> attack. So it, it, like, it narratively makes sense as well that that's happening. And the stress little bar is like a a temperature gauge until it gets to the point where it goes red, when your car says stop now and you have to stop and the engine will blow up. It's that kind of thing where you you get a permanent uh, debilitating condition if your stress goes too high and that kind of stuff. And you clear it by by using your vice. So you've got another bit of narrative stuff where you go and smoke opium or dance with ladies or do whatever else is that's your vice, which adds more story, but has a mechanical effect in the downtime. Those different modes of play between being on the heist, free play where you just like chatting and making jokes. The downtime stuff, we do bits like long-term projects. There's just so much packed in there. And it does take a little bit of getting used to. You're right, it, it does take an extra effort to work out how to play and how to run it, because it's not just like playing D&D or 13th Age or any of the other games we've mentioned. You have to look at it. And the other thing you have to be comfortable with is failure or mm. partial success. So you have to be expect to be on a heist and the waiter unexpectedly walks out of the kitchens and sees you there, or something else happens. You drop something, the guard just happens to come inside from having a fad because if he got his lighter, whatever it might be, you expect that to happen. But if you can buy into that kind of idea, you're going to be constantly tripping over things and getting somewhere. I think I mentioned this to a friend of ours recently, didn't I? Mm-hmm. If you think of it in a Star Wars fashion, like when they got to rescue Leah on the Star Destro- uh, the Death Star rather. Just one thing after another. Stormtroopers keep coming in, messes up his conversation with the guy that comes and has to shoot the desk. Uh, they are jumping a trash compactor, it starts closing, there's a monster in there. There's just like one thing after another happens. But they run a heist and cool stuff goes on. And there's always something that someone else has remembered. Oh, I don't worry about this. This is my ex student? I'll go and jewel him while you're getting the Millennium Falcon, all that kind of stuff by spending a bit of stress to do a flashback scene. So if you look at it in, the, in that kind of aspect of you're probably going to succeed but there were loads of little obstacles along the way that are cool and interesting and make make you have to think on your feet about what you're going to do about it then that's the game for you
1: yeah and that that is the bit that i take into every other game now as a gm or if i'm trying to write a scenario or even if i'm a player as well i I really seek to kind of embrace consequence now you know being risk averse in role-playing games has has never been a great tactic anyway I don't think because you have to get involved in the life of adventure whatever the game is you're playing whether it's supers or horror or whatever you have to get involved in the life you have to get involved in the premise of the game and be you know, a little bit proactive and a bit of an instigator because that's that's generally speaking what every role playing character is but Blades in the Dark makes it absolutely compulsory it's impossible to be a casual observer as soon as you interact with the world in any way at all as soon as you take a step something's going to take a step towards you and things that have to happen and and it soon spirals and it just becomes a game that's that's very very difficult to prepare for in some ways you have to prepare to improvise because you can't write really a scenario for it that's going to have any words on the page beyond the first opening scene because you know stuff is going to happen and it's it's the only predictability is about how unpredictable things are going to be Mm. And, and carrying that into other games is a cinch because some of it is just attitude some of it's mechanical as well. I've used engagement roles in D&D with a huge success, actually, more than once. That works an absolute treat. Downtime activities are handled so elegantly that, you know, I'd struggle to, to play other games without using something like that, at least. It's, it's really got loads of portable bits, and I'm not surprised that it's been turned into other systems and other games too. Um, my recommendation would be Scum and Villainy, which will do you that Death Star Rescue perfectly mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely would um, and take a look at Band of Blades as well if you want something that's really slightly different in it, and that's about being on the run from an undead army and trying to get back to the last citadel to make a final stand so militaristic fantasy and there are so many other hacks big and small uh, It certainly won't be the last we ever see of that at all um, but yeah that's that's definitely a big hitter so Mr. Harper and friends have had three massive shout outs <laughs> so far today. <laughs> I' mentioned Legends and feelings as well about four really exactly yeah exactly
0: yeah, well, let's um, well, let's pick another one from the old darling scene then uh, dogs in the vineyard. all right which was it was it blew up in the common parlance? I guess you'd say it'd be all over Twitter if Twitter existed then. Uh, that was a massive one. I think another, it's another one that felt a little bit ahead of its time as well. It's done by Vincent Berker, who's previously famous for I kill Puppies for Satan or something like that. I can't remember exactly and you're playing mormon gunslingers, I guess mm. so you're quite young and you go into town and have to sort out the sin that's in the town so it's a bit weird It's not like playing Boot Hill or Deadlands or something like that um, but it had good ideas about. Doing something different with mechanics. So one of my favourite phrases is about "Have you got the dice to back that up?" and that kind of stuff. So it's sort of paraphrase from Dogs in the Vineyard in a way, because it comes to you sort of getting to some kind of confrontation. Then you have to see if you have got the dice to back it up. You roll pools of dice, and then it does a good thing about trying to how you'd have a standoff. I guess in most games you might roll intimidation, or you would do something else like that. You'd make a roll and see if it worked or not and social mechanics are always a bit of a struggle. In Dogs in the Vineyard, if, for example, you decided you were gonna go in town and kill the sheriff and I was trying to stop you, we could start out just having a normal conversation about it and, and saying yes and no, and you roll some dice based on your traits and stuff, and then two at a time you put your dice forward into a pool to try and win the stakes, and you set the stakes out. One is I'm trying to stop you and you're were trying to get in and kill the sheriff. The stakes are quite clear. So I might put through a four and a three or five rolled, and then you try and put two better dice in there, to beat me, and then I can raise by putting two more of my dice in and stuff, but you might run out of dice one side or the of before the other one has done, but it's already given you that kind of backward and forward of conversation rather than just saying, let me in, no I'm not, let's roll dice and see it, you can say, oh you should let me in for this reason, I'm not going to go in because X, Y, Z, so it gives you a bit of narrative to and fro, which is cool, and then you can escalate, so you can go to fists, or you can pull a knife out, or you can pull a gun out, but each time you escalate, you get to roll more dice, so you've got more to put into your argument, but it also means the fallout that's going to come at the end of it is going to be worse. And if you've gone all the way up to guns, then there are chances you might die. If your fallout's 20 or more, uh, you've got two options, either you're dead or you get to narrate to see a scene where you die. So, so mm-hmm. you it's either dead or a delayed death. But that's, that gives you the sort of like, do you want to pull out guns and shoot people thing? Cause there's a good chance you might die, which in a game like Deadlands and Boot Hill again, you would just be pulling out guns all the time and shooting people but uh, it just sort of like subverts that kind of genre expectation so every conversation you're in or any conflict you're in you're always thinking do I want to escalate do I want to roll more dice or not um you know do I want to do I want to give now and let him have his stakes and then I'm going to have to work another way around it afterwards one of the first games I saw that give a new way of setting up conflicts and resolving it
1: yeah so that idea of conflict resolution uh, again, again, I don't think it invented, but probably one of the first major exposures I'd have had to the idea of conflict resolution. It's a real where, popular one, yeah. Yeah, where you you won't do things round by round necessarily. And it won't be about tasks. A task might be picking a lock, uh, a task might be swinging a sword, but a conflict resolution might be um, getting through the door uh, as opposed to picking a lock. There are millions of different ways you can do it, or the entire combat. Yeah. Uh, so it, it can stretch and blend around that. So yeah, I've seen that in lots of games um, since then. Can't think of too many before, but is that something that's informed the way that you played games in the last couple of months? Is there anything that you recognize from Dogs in the Vineyard that, that you do now that you didn't do before encountering that?
0: It gave me an appreciation of the mix of the mechanic and the broader brush. So A gun which we just mentioned, for example, is largely conflict resolution. And that also has quite a crunchy bit to it. It's not like as crunchy as Dogs in the Vineyard, which rolls lots of dice in a bucket of dice to play. Mm. But there's just enough crunch where you have to, you, you do have decisions to make about what domain you're going to use, or if whether they get involved or not, or whether they support someone else. So it's that mix of, because I think a lot of those at the time when the small press games were coming out at that period, there was kind of an anti D and D vibe to a certain extent. Hmm. There's the whole thing where Ron Edwards has gone, like, if you play indie you're brain dead. And there's this kind of like factionalism split between so called indie games and uh, trad games. And I think uh, certainly Dogs and then later Gone and some of the ones in between have done a much better job of uh, the middle ground where you might actually have a gem and you do roll some dice and there are some tactical decisions to make, but it's also conflict resolution and it's more about the story than making individual task rolls and things like that. Hmm. So it, it, it's, I think it's definitely influenced a lot of other game designers off the back of it. You know, once Dogs in the vineyard, are really hit, a lot of the people looked at it, oh, that's great. I'm going to do something like that. So I think it's one of those core um, central games that people think of when you talk about indie games when they all exploded. And then, so there's a lot of DNA from that that are like, filtered out into a variety of other things.
1: Yeah. And of course, Vincent Baker, amongst other things, goes on to create Apocalypse World, mm-hmm. which which then spins off even more stuff and these games are hugely influential even beyond you know what we're talking about now around our personal tables they've they've all inspired new games new designers people have started writing their own games purely because they've read what they've seen in dogs in the vineyard apocalypse world lasers and feelings that that breed of designer uh, has just turned out to be so influential they change the way the games are played around a table, and then perhaps change the way the games are published and, and consumed in the wider hobby. Yeah, which is exactly. no small thing. Okay, um, I'm going to go back in time slightly further. I'm going to go back to uh, to God's own decade, the '90s. <laughs> so, <laughs> not for the first time, because I think in in any gamer's sort of like personal kind of, oh, I keep saying journey. That's a terrible word. Any gamer's kind of experiences as they they go on from being like a callow youth to being a crusty old veteran gamer, you you get to a bit I think where you decide you want to be a bit more grown up about your gaming. Uh, you go past that quite quickly and you realise that there's nothing wrong with playing a barbarian and punching people for fun and profit. But you know you go through a stage where you get quite serious about it and a little bit moody. <laughs> yeah. And uh, my moody years were definitely the nineties. They were the hobby's moody years as well. And I wanted to flag up like a a little group of games that kind of influenced me on the way that I view uh, games set in the modern day. So I love genre stuff and I've always played barbarians and wizards or uh, space pilots and miners um, or 1920s investigators or kind of a pulp uh, idea but modern day gaming gaming in like the current world the one that it is right now where it's got like telephones and cars and petrol stations and computers that was kind of like that was a piece of gaming that i'd never really played in very much before um wasn't fantastically well represented and and i couldn't get anyone to play superheroes which was probably the closest thing you could get to that yeah but then the 90s came along and that was the only type of game that was being made so the games that really sort of changed the way that I viewed gaming were Over the Edge Unknown Armies um, games like Mage as part of the big White Wolf 90s production line Mm -hmm. those ones that made you play what looked like ordinary people but in fact are anything but playing in in the world with the greatest source book ever written which is Earth so you've got all of that kind of like stuff that people know and the influence that I took from that was the immediate accessibility for those kind of scenarios unlike a space game where you have to try and say spaceship but then make sure that everyone's seeing the same spaceship that you are in your head it's not the ss it's not uss enterprise or you know or, it's, uh, or the millennium falcon or saturn 5 it could be any of those things but in a modern day game when you say pizza delivery people are going to see that kind of like flat white box aren't they with a pizza in it you don't really have to elaborate massively so you can get really stuck into some of the crispier stuff behind all of that and games like Over the Edge Unknown Armies and Mage literally played with reality because reality was already sketched out for everybody everybody understood what an aeroplane was and like you know that kind of stuff so let's talk about stuff that's behind that and it it bought into the media of the time with things like the X-Files being on TV Uh, 14 times was kind of like a really big publication back then I remember Uh, and people's appetite for comics was definitely getting a little bit darker and a bit less kind of uh, Marvel comics it was less four colour and a bit more like Sandman uh, Preacher, things like that Mm. and those games they were all a little bit moody, even over the edge which is at times a hilarious game but they were, all had a certain amount of maturity to them yeah. not in a kind of guns and gore and sex but just in a kind of big ideas kind of thing mm. and, and I still to this day like that idea I like the idea of having big concepts even if I'm playing a science fiction game or a fantasy game now I think it's, it's a good thing to have some some, some meat <laughs> to, to, to the adventure <laughs> does that make sense? I don't think that makes any sense You'll do a better job of it now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I know what you're saying. I'd, I'd probably add in things like Delta Green as well, and that sort of yeah. game that was, that was knocking around. I think, to an element, there was kind of the kind of big ideas thing, if you go back to Earth, Don, is that you know there's, there's dragons in the background pulling the scenes, and the Therans might come back and invade, and they want the little eyes on the territory. So I think there's big ideas to a degree. They're just not as ingrained and visceral as things that. Like you said, that the basics are taken care of in modern day. You understand most things, you know, that there's terrorists and you understand that wars happen and there's just, you've got all the concepts already. So that you can then play with it. Cause everybody's already on the, you know, a common understanding without having to learn about the game world and who or what is important and how powerful it is, and then play with it after you've worked out what everything is at base level. Hmm. So yeah, that does make sense. I don't know what you mean by maturity as well, I'm a bit more grown up, That's, there's nothing wrong with just punching an orc every now and again. But it's also good to have worthy games where you're trying to think of something a bit different, or go a bit existential sometimes, or mm. uh, you know, fighting for an ideal, like literally, rather than just a one-dimensional. My god's the god of X, and your god's the god of Y. So I'm going to fight you. Actually, thinking about for something like Over the Edge, it could be you know, fighting for the concept of happiness and whether it will still exist or not by the end of the session. If mm. you want to go that way, it sounds probably a little bit airy fairy to some people. But it's all part of the rich tapestry of role playing, and there's um, there's just some different ideals and, and things you can think about, setting stakes for, or fighting over, or uh, trying to subvert. It just gives you different ideas, and then you can take all that stuff and put it back in your fantasy worlds. Mm. And instead of just like going and punching dragons and taking the gold in dungeons, you might have more political shenanigans or other things happening within the game world that you, you you're dealing with.
1: It's those games were inspirational as well as influential and many games have been inspirational uh for example i'd never read any hp lovecraft and when call of cthulhu came along that was the first mention i'd ever seen of that gentleman's works and and i didn't read any for absolutely years and years after that so i can't say it inspired me to go and pick up hp lovecraft but it would have done for an awful lot of people but games like mage really (laughs) blew my mind in in the best possible sense i went and got books that I would never have picked up before because they were listed as inspirational material mm. for games like Mage. Uh, I read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, for example. Right. And the follow up, which no one's read. But <laughs> and and I I took a lot out of them as well. I really took a lot out of them. But my world view was changed by games like Mage. I read William Burroughs off the back of Over the Edge. Mm. These were games that you know, I started with D and D, which may have come from Tolkien and Moorcock and Lieber, and you know, t- ten, fifteen years down the line, I'm reading William Burroughs and reading, you know, uh, sort of stranger, Illuminati-based books. You know, it's it's mad to see how how things have changed. And I was buying music and watching movies to get me more and more into those kind of games. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't too fussed about most of the White Wolf stuff. I've never been particularly into, like, you know, dressing up like a goth and listening to the Mission and vampires and werewolves and stuff but the more metaphysical stuff that, that, really, that really did appeal and still does and it means you know, that you know, 20 years later from that you can go and watch a film like Inception and take delight that you know, something so bizarre is cutting through into the mainstream that people do want to see stories like that about the human condition mm. and what a step up that was from rolling up a magic user and, and dying to a giant rat in, in the caves of chaos
0: <laughs> in, Quite, in, in a relatively
1: yeah. short period of time so you know, if maybe it was just my age, maybe it was just being in my twenties and being the environment I was in. But role playing has been with me all my adult life and childhood, and, uh, and I can certainly peg out a few milestones on how I've changed as a person through some role playing games, which is quite a big claim that I probably could only uh, do that with a few other things in life, maybe music and relationships. But you know, this is kind of a big deal. Role playing is important.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here ends the advert. <laughs>
1: you should try some of these games; they're quite good. <laughs>
0: first one is free. Lady Blackbird. <laughs>
1: exactly.
0: No, that's that's all good, Baz. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure whether I want to include Vampire and things like that, because although they were definitely inspirational to a lot of people, they, you know, the people who hadn't played role playing games before would pick up Vampire, and that would be their first game. Mm. Uh, and it definitely like, you know, sparked off a big live action scene and various other bits and pieces. There are a set of games where the mechanics don't really help. Yeah. The stunted design goals and the, the mechanics are st- like you can draw the DND the DNA right back to D and D. It's very task based. There's a lot of stuff about getting electrocuted or how much damage your firearm does and things like that. And then details about all these powers and stuff, but not much about how you have Uh, conspiracies or political shenanigans and stuff which is ostensibly according to the fiction a lot of what was supposed to be happening and what your characters would get involved in Mm. and the adventure books one of a better phrase were a long list of characters and places and then it was up to the GM to kind of weave all that together and make something out of it based on what the, the players were doing but the core book didn't really give you tools to do any of that so, I think they do count as inspirational games, So they were good for, again, it was that taking a left turn away from the typical traveler Cthulhu d D&D route that most games are going down, to do something different. Uh, it's just a shame that mechanically they didn't shift as well. I think we Will probably did better, because at, at some point you're supposed to transform into a half-man, half-wolf killing machine and rip things apart. So at that point, spending Rage Points to get extra attacks and doing mm-hmm. loads of damage and stuff, and having a big claim that does aggravated damage, that all that all fits in. But I guess Vampire, and then other games perhaps like Wraith, mm. which were cool and had a great background and really interesting, it's a shame that those books weren't informed by some of the small press games that were going about. They're probably laser-focused in on, this is what this game's about, and I'm going to make some mechanics just for this. Whereas I think it sort of like culminated in ultimately with the new world of darkness where you've got a generic rule book. Yeah. And then you bolt on your setting, which I think I think I just think that limits you. I just don't think that gives you the ability to really explore what it is to be a ghost or a werewolf or a vampire or something. It's not stopped lots of people playing it and I've I've enjoyed playing vampire on many occasions and werewolf and the other games. Mm. But I guess that's my one that's kind of like not one that got away, but it's it's one that feels like it's had an impact. But for me personally, I don't feel it did enough because uh, the nuts and bolts of it didn't give me the thing it talked about doing all the time.
1: No, that's absolutely a fair comment, mate. I, I think having looked at my little list and listened to your list as well, I'm now thinking about the ones that got away. The ones that, that everybody else seems to be talking about, who how influential they were in their lives, and it hasn't resonated with me. I think of stuff like RuneQuest. Um, just has never landed with me squarely, um, I've no objection to it wanting to keep attempting to do that and the start of a set I'm looking forward to greedily, uh, but in all my years it's never really landed with me and and I think uh, there's a strong argument to say that was the first big split in the hobby, as in it pulled people out of the Dungeons and Dragons routine fairly early on and plenty of people would have never looked back um, uh-huh. to, to that kind of stuff uh, a similarly Call of Cthulhu of a similar vintage um, that one's never really landed with me either and I I know of people who started in a hobby with whatever game it was they were playing have played Call of Cthulhu once and never played anything else but since like forever Yeah. (laughs) so it's clearly those games are massively influential but it's going to be a very very personal experience isn't it on the games that have changed the way you've played and the way you see things Mm.
0: yeah for sure yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think now ones that have had an influence, but then I didn't like, or I didn't touch again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: a negative influence. <laughs> no,
0: probably, probably a bad road to go down. I guess.
1: <laughs>
0: probably some of those indie games that we, you know, I won't mention by name, but like, I, th- I think it's very hit and miss. Yeah, and some didn't really give you something. But the beauty of all those that scene that happened at that time was there was like a lot of games, and they were cheap, and they were small. Yeah. So you can actually read through a lot of stuff to go for ideas, mm. and then it's nice to see that some of the same propagated and come through into other games as well. I'm thinking of things mm. like talking like really another big influencer, I guess, is the free league uh phenomenon. Shall we call it? Yes. Where there's just a bunch of stuff which is all ostensibly Year Zero engine they call it, but there's a massive difference between Forbidden Lands and Tales from the Loop. Mm. Like they are not the same system. Apart from you're all a bunch of D sixes and look for sixes. There's a lot of differences in the meat of those games, uh, but uh, when you make characters for most of their games, like Verson and all the others, uh, on each character, it's a, it's got a line which says, "And you think this about someone else? Pick who it is." Mm. And that's the sort of thing that's come out of that sort of early indie games that wasn't necessarily indie, indie. I guess people did it in the home games. It might even be in some early books, and I've forgotten now. And just, it was reinvented, and I think it was a brand new idea. But that's kind of what might some people might call indie elements and in inverted commas. Uh, it's good to see them coming out in games like Free League where they just bake it in now and it's just standard that all the games do something like that because it's a great idea why wouldn't you try and link the characters together even if it's a fairly superficial way at first it will give you something to add to your game and I think that's the other bit that, that I really like you are seen those inspirational little bits that are like dotted about that seem quite small and could be overlooked quite easily some people might look at it and just ignore that bit of the, the character generation process but those bits that you see speckle throughout and the ones that stick and seem to turn up in lots of games over and over again, they're the, they're the really interesting and exciting ones to me.
1: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely, mate. So it turns out that there's there's little flashes across your gaming career that just last you don't know they're going to at the time sometimes it's a revelation isn't it? you crack open a book or you play that session at a con you think wow that has opened up my perceptions to what gaming can be like I'll never be the same again afterwards but actually I think with most of these things it's, it's little seeds get planted at the back of your head and you find yourself writing a scenario for I don't know for the Expanse RPG or something um, but because of a game of Over the Edge you played in 1996 <laughs> you're adding in a little faction that you just wouldn't have done if you hadn't had that exposure to that game it's opened up a little door in your brain hasn't it and just let some let some new vibes in Yeah. Um, so you know gaming constantly evolves and as gamers I think we constantly evolve and I think that's a good thing and I am absolutely certain that the well isn't dry yet something, I don't know what it will be something's going to come along and make me want to burn all my prior books and never go back <laughs> to playing them again <laughs> and I won't don't worry because I've done that once already and that was really painful, yeah, painful. Um, <laughs> I've done it before <laughs> yeah but there will be there will be something like, and it'll probably be written by John Harper <laughs> yeah well <laughs> doing well, something well, for Free League
0: <laughs> oh my god can you imagine
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah well exactly can you imagine and, and, and that's that's what it's going to be isn't it it's going to be probably crossing a couple of streams uh, probably bringing in viewpoints from different things which is why to get just a little bit serious just at the end, that's why diversity is such a big deal for mm. for this hobby. Just bringing in different viewpoints and different voices can only be a good thing because it will just send the hobby spinning off into some place which is going to get some young person cracking open a book or sitting down at a con or watching a stream and going, OMG, oh, things are different now. And, and that's what it's all about, isn't it?
0: Yeah, for sure. This, you talked about Kickstarter briefly. Clearly. Well, you tried not to talk about it. <laughs> and I, I, I'm just going to pardon now while I try and find out my Kickstarter things. So, so I can <laughs> well, find that's a it.
1: Fairly, fairly big list to look through, isn't it?
0: It's a Coyote and Crow, the role playing game. Yes. Which was made by Native Americans. It's a kind of like, I want to say a sci fi a bit, or a futuristic fantasy. I don't know. It's got some really cool art. Everyone is from you know a different background than the typical. You know, white European. So I've seen something like that, which is taken from our community, and gone, do you know what? We haven't done a role playing game. Let's sort something out. And uh, let's bring our culture into it. Like, that's just something new. Like, that's not been done before in terms of built from that uh, that well of inspiration and historical knowledge and, you know, shared culture and understanding.
1: Yeah, I noticed that uh, the uh, that game just hit a million dollars on Kickstarter. Kickstarter, alright. And, yes, um, all right. <laughs> and there, there aren't many that have. <laughs> so that's a massive deal. Yeah, that's huge. All right mate, so it turns out there's plenty of life left in this old hobby yet. If I'm still being influenced as uh, as we are by things that are are now over 20 years old and are still having a resonance today, then the next 20 years are going to be a pretty exciting place to uh, to hang out in.
0: Absolutely. Well, I was I was passing the other day because I ran a bit of art war. Um some of the bits from the GM tips I went, "Oh, these are great ideas." And now it's been so long I, can't, I genuinely can't remember if any of them I used to do before Red Hat war or, or I've done yeah. them all after yeah because like I agreed with everyone I thought oh but did I did I learn some from this book or did I always think that or did it was there a mix I don't know so I think the more you play and the longer things go on you'll just they'll just become part of your gaming back catalog the way you game the way you you do things so yeah more different games and as more new games come out we're bound to change and improve and grow.
1: I've, I've no doubt there's plenty more topics to be had on this on this area, uh, gaming repertoire diversity, inclusion, all those things we've talked about so far, so yeah thanks for that chat guys, that's been a really interesting hour to go mm. back in the archives a little bit uh, the games who made us who we are today, uh, and I'm immediately wanting to revise my list and think of another half dozen things that have had a big impact, but we'll save that for the comments, yeah
0: that, that was just the trailer really wasn't it <laughs> <laughs> it
1: was a bit but we'll save that for you guys to get in touch with us you know how to do it by now for goodness sake Uh, please do we've we've been really heartened recently to see so much engagement with with the stuff that we're putting out there thanks to the ever loyal and generous support of our patrons of course who are now amply rewarded (coughs) amply he says with the happy patron that lands in their inbox every month uh, and that's been getting some some content from our patrons as well so a little zini to, to keep the blues away during this difficult circumstances time Uh, that's going to be for all of our patrons so join the, the smart posse, get involved with that if you can, or just drop us an email find us on Twitter and let us know how did you become the game you are today what were the systems and experiences that made you who you are
0: yeah there's probably some games out there that we maybe, some have slipped through the net that we don't know about, that we didn't mention, let us know which they are and we can either fill another hour talking about them or go away and play them, so yes thanks everyone, thanks for listening, thanks to all our patrons once more and thanks to who supports and uh, shares news about the channel. And we'll see you next time on What Would The Smart Party Do? Bye. <laughs>